Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, um, my name is Paul Sluis. I serve on the church council. And actually, that's the source of a little bit of confusion. I'm not on the elder board just because I'm old. Okay? <laughs> Got to figure that out. But my age does connect me with some, some old experiences. And when I was a boy, I had a music memory like a steel trap. Sorry, Miguel, I don't have that anymore. Um, so I remember some old stuff, especially things that were uh, repeated often and catchy, like jingles. So, and I also grew up at a time when cigarette advertising was allowed on the airwaves. So unfortunately, my mind is cluttered with memories of cigarette jingles, among other things. And now one of them's actually a little bit germane to the subject today. So it was this, the jingle for the Kent brand cigarette. And it went like, happiness is the taste of Kent. Happiness is the taste of Kent. And it ended with, that's what happiness is. Well, the interesting thing about that jingle is not its content. It's the outrage that it provoked, especially among the Christian community. And it wasn't the outrage because it was tobacco being pushed. Trust me, there were plenty of other tobacco jingles out there. The outrage was this. How crass, how materialistic, how shallow to say that happiness can be found in a consumer product. Now, fast forward 50 years. We have happy Honda days and happy burrito and happy this and happy that, and it's nothing. Now, I'd be the first to say that 50 years ago, there were better things to get all riled up about than the commercial nature of the abuse of the word happiness, especially on Juneteenth. When we remember the end of slavery and the serious issues that that has left our country with. But still, it does seem to me like society has gotten a little more materialistic over the years. And maybe our country's primordial religion of materialism has reasserted itself as Christianity has been marginalized a bit. And that makes the subject of materialism a little extra relevant. And we're going to be looking at an interchange between Jesus and a man who had a struggle with materialism, with his personal wealth. A man who seeks a right relationship with God, but has to face these questions. Let's look at the Gospel of Luke, beginning in chapter 18, verse 18. I'll read it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with God, excuse me, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. I'm going to be referring to the parallel accounts in Matthew and in Mark because these parallel accounts in scripture are synopses, not transcripts, and each provides a little bit of detail that the others don't. So let's start with who is this seeker? Well, he's rich. That's emphasized in all three accounts. But his story is relevant to us even though we're not rich. Let's emphasize that a bit. Most of the seeker's attributes are widespread among us, within our congregation, within our society. And we can be tempted to idolize wealth without having it. You don't need to own an idol to worship it. And we're all rich enough to be tempted by the material world. This is a prosperous country. You know, I'm a retired lawyer, and when I was advising AC Transit's drug and alcohol policy uh, and, and program, one of the uh, professionals who was, uh, con we were consulting with said, you pay your bus drivers too much. They're buying the high-priced drugs. Okay, see, even working-class people have to struggle with some of the temptations of wealth. And besides, wealth isn't the only thing that can have a similar effect on our spiritual lives. These are going to be principles that are a broader application. Second characteristic, he was young. We find that out in Matthew chapter 19, verse 20. But that term for young can be anybody under 40. So the fact that he's not a youth anymore, he says he's kept the law since his youth, just means that he's somewhere in the young side. He's a ruler, says Luke 18:18. 18, 18. That's a generic term for somebody who's the head of any group of people, doesn't have to be a political autocrat. So he might have been a CEO, a head honcho of some sort, uh, maybe a rising star given his youth and his wealth. We can see that he had high self-esteem. Mark 10:17 says he runs up to Jesus. As far as I know, that's the only person who came to Jesus running. Um, some of us might be curious what kind of uh, athletic footwear he had on. <laughs> All I can tell you for sure is that it was locally sourced, handcrafted from organic ingredients. So he could have done fine in Berkeley. But it shows that he wouldn't, so he, he wouldn't settle for, for just talking to the disciples. He ran past them, went straight to the head guy. That's kind of a confident thing to do. A bigger indication of his high self-esteem, however, is that he sees himself as having kept the law from his youth. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.6 talks about being blameless under the law as a reason for confidence in the flesh, i.e. self-confidence, i.e. high self-esteem. Now, he rejects this confidence in the flesh as rubbish compared to what he has in Christ, three verses later. But still, that tells you that in the culture of the time, with the attitudes of the time, this seeker had a high level of respect for himself. Another reason is that riches are commonly presumed to come from God's blessing. 
and or our personal merit. There's actually some support in the Old Testament for this. I'll talk about that more later. And finally, he shows self-confidence or high self-esteem by asking in the Matthew version, what good deed, singular, must I do to have eternal life? Which suggests that he thinks he's just one good deed away from locking in heaven. But another characteristic of his that is very touching is that he's honest enough with himself to recognize that he needs something more. That's what makes him a seeker. We all innately know this, but we don't all acknowledge it because it's something troubling. And around us, we see people taking various easy ways out to avoid that. Sometimes it consists of telling ourselves we're good, we're good, we're good, we're good, we're good, and never acknowledging anything negative about ourselves. Sometimes it comes by attacking the standards that might call into question our righteousness. Often it's ignoring that nagging feeling and burying it in distractions. I think that's one of the reasons why we have such an entertainment-obsessed culture. Other people take the hard ways out, like workaholism throwing themselves into their work so that they don't have to think about the serious issues in life and can call themselves a success because they've made lots of money. Or even uh, doing good deeds, hoping to outweigh the deficiencies we see in ourselves and kill that nagging feeling by telling us, oh, we've, we've overcome that, we've balanced that out. So the seeker asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Objection, Your Honor. That's what a courtroom attorney like me might have said. Assumes a fact not in evidence, because this question is full of assumptions. But let's not be too hard on the seeker, because he wasn't in a courtroom, he was in a teaching environment. And we all know what teachers say, there is no such thing as a stupid question. Uh, and we also know that uh, some of his assumptions were valid, and we would agree with them as Christians. Let's look at them. First, there was the assumption that eternal life is desirable. It's possible, I mean. The, he wouldn't be asking, how do I get it, if he didn't think it was possible. And that set him apart from the Sadducees, which were the sect that controlled the religious structure of the day. It sets himself apart from a lot of cynics in our own day. Secondly, it assumes that eternal life is desirable. Or again, or why would he ask the question? In our day today, all too many people are feeling that emptiness and despair and fear are making them think that life is fundamentally tiresome. It's something to be endured or distracted from with entertainments or even ended. So why protract it forever? But the seeker doesn't make that assumption and neither should we. In 1 Corinthians 2 verses 9 and 10, Scripture says that God has prepared things beyond the human imagination for those who love him. And like the seeker, we count on God filling eternity with joy, starting out right here and now. Third assumption, that eternal life can and must be attained by doing. And here's where the seeker misses the point. We know as Christians that accepting Christ is the only doing we need to have eternal life. But the seeker even seems to assume that all it takes is a word of instruction from Jesus and the seeker will get it done. 
After all, he has the wealth to get the deed done, or so he thinks. Still, the question still assumes that the seeker hasn't got eternal life locked up already. So Jesus engages. Now, we're often reminded that Jesus is infinitely more than just a great teacher, but let's not overlook what a great teacher he is. Look how he handles this. He doesn't attack the seeker. He doesn't even attack the seeker's assumptions directly. Instead, without leading with a question, here's how you gain eternal life, he responds with questions. Why do you ask me? Instead of singling the seeker out, Jesus points to the human condition and even to himself by asking, why do you call me good? And why do you ask me? So he gets into the same boat as the seeker, yet without denying that Jesus is unsinkable. And he quotes, no one is good except God alone. We'll find that also in Romans 3, verses 9 through 20, and the Old Testament verses that are reflected there. Reportedly, it was a common rabbinical position. It was not okay to call somebody good. So the seeker was actually stepping a little bit out of bounds and calling Jesus good. But Jesus, being God incarnate, actually qualifies. He is good. Yet he doesn't spell that out for the seeker at this point. Implicit in, in, uh, in this uh, particular response is that your deeds don't mean you're a good person. So they don't guarantee God's favor. But Jesus goes on, you know the commandments. Now, if you took this out of context, you might think that Jesus is teaching salvation by works, by keeping the commandments. But Jesus has just said that, it, uh, you know, no one is good but God, that you can't get there that way. Now, keeping the commandments would, in theory, lead to eternal life. God would have no reason to judge anybody but it's impossible to achieve. So Jesus is almost being sarcastic. Well, you might lead a perfect life. So this is why the, the law itself required atonement for sin. It didn't say do all the right things and you go to heaven. You still needed atonement, which was fulfilled in Jesus. Again, Jesus is gently questioning the assumption that you gain eternal life by doing. He then lists five of the Ten Commandments that relate to treating others right. The Matthew version adds the catch-all, love your neighbor as yourself. Again, this implicitly challenges the seeker's priorities of seeking wealth over loving others. 1 John 20, 20 says, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So Jesus may be hinting that the seeker's focus on his wealth is a failure to love his brother as commanded. So he's not actually keeping all the commandments from his youth. But the seeker misses the hint and responds, I did all that. Then Jesus issues a challenge. Sell all you have and give to the poor and follow me. Now first, Mark notes that Jesus looked on the seeker and loved him. So this was not a brush off, go, go do the impossible. No, 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 no. And yet nobody else is known to have been told to dispose of all his property before following Christ. 
If you look at Zacchaeus, who comes down from the sycamore tree and announces that he's giving the poor half of his goods and making restitution if he's defrauded anyone. Now, he's a chief tax collector, so his ill-gotten gains probably came from extortion rather than fraud. There's a loophole there for a lawyer to find. Uh, Matthew, or Levi. Uh, Pastor Andrew uh, talked about this in detail last week, how Levi left his tax booth. He left his livelihood, but he went back to his house that he hadn't given away and held a big feast for lots of people. So he hadn't had to dispose of every last thing completely and permanently before following Christ. Even the fishermen. Yes, they left everything. But Mark 1, verses 16 through 20 notes that James and John left their boat and nets with their father Zebedee and the higher servants. And after Jesus' resurrection, when Peter says, let's go fishing, there was a boat at his disposal, says John 21.3. Ultimately, all the apostles committed their whole lives to Jesus, and Christian tradition says they were martyred. But they didn't all have to liquidate everything from the start. So why did Jesus require the seeker to do that at this point? Well, Jesus saw that wealth was the seeker's idol. An idol, you may recall, is anything we put ahead of God, whether it's intrinsically good or bad. Pastor Andrew talked about that six weeks ago in his May 1 sermon. And I can prove that pretty easily by, by the acid test. The seeker went away sad when he was put to the choice between his wealth and Jesus. Sad. Now, Luke doesn't mention the departure, but Matthew and Mark do. He went away sad, not angry, not smirking, not nonchalant, as if he thought Jesus was wrong or unfair. No, he knew Jesus was right. This is an example of a very powerful truth. We can learn what is right, but lack the power to follow up on it. That's something that we all have to struggle with. You can hear good, good preaching and read the word, but if you don't find the power from God to follow through, it doesn't change you. Even the promise of treasure in heaven didn't sway the seeker. So Jesus teaches disciples. He teaches the disciples as he sees the seeker go away sad, that it's not humanly possible for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God, though with God all things are. Now Matthew and Mark say that the disciples were amazed, greatly astonished. And here in Luke it says, then who can be saved? Why are they so astonished? Well, again, the Old Testament correlated godly living and wisdom with enrichment. Proverbs 11:25 says, whoever brings blessing will be enriched. Sort of like what goes around comes around, probably the number one superstition of our time. But see Proverbs 11:28, just three verses later, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Note the contrast between those who trust in riches and the righteous. Those are two separated categories. Colossians 3.5 just refers to a covetous man as an idolater, point blank. And the word for covetousness is actually kind of broad. It includes avarice, the love of money. 
God doesn't promise us material wealth in exchange for faithfulness, but Jesus does promise blessing to his disciples in verse 30 of this passage. Now, the many times more that Jesus promises is not necessarily many times more stuff. This is metaphoric language. And we can see that easily because one of the things Jesus promises many times more of is parents. Are you going to have multiple parents all of a sudden? No, of course not. That kind of violates biology, history, and common sense. Good rule of interpretation. If an interpretation is kooky, don't follow it. So this is metaphoric language. And God may, as he does for the seeker, promise blessing in the afterlife. Or he may, he may give it now, but in non-material forms. We are blessed with brothers and sisters and the family in Christ. Here we are. We're blessed with homes that can welcome us if we practice the gift of hospitality and a wealth of joy. Sometimes God does bless us in material ways. In fact, many of the victories we win in Christ can potentially enhance wealth. Just to give one example, overcoming addictions by the power of God can have positive impacts on our ability to hold a job, make money, advance in the working world. Many other things like that are, can be found if you, if you stop and think about it. But earthly wealth might be at most, at most, a byproduct of the Christian life. Never its goal, never its promise. When it captures our heart, wealth gets destructive. In the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, 22, Jesus talks about the deceitfulness of riches choking out the word. How are riches deceitful? They don't necessarily talk to us, although if your riches are in the form of a, an audio system, maybe it does. Um, riches are deceitful in that they lead us to think they're worth living for. They lead us to think they can distract us from the serious issues of life. They lead us to put ourselves over others. These are some of the ways in which riches are deceitful. And that's true whether or not you are rich. Again, you don't have to own an idol to worship it. Wealth is not even necessarily a blessing in the first place. Nor, of course, does wealth always flow from good deeds. There's such a thing as ill-gotten gain. It all depends on how we approach it and what we do with it. Let me give an example from my personal family history. Now that my parents' generation has all passed away, I think I can speak freely about the Sluice family business. Yeah. Um, I'm the son of Dutch immigrants, and the Sluice family had a business that goes all the way back to 1868. During the last winter of World War II, the occupying German forces decided to take all the food. They didn't want the Dutch to have it. They wanted to have it for themselves. They didn't want the Allies to capture it. They took all they could get their hands on. And starvation began in Holland. People were dying for lack of food. Meanwhile, my grandfather's warehouse had somehow escaped being plundered. And it had a full inventory 
Now, the, the seed of a bean plant is a bean. And the seed of a pea plant is a pea. And even seed that can't be eaten can be pressed for edible oil. Did my grandfather release that stuff so that the starving around him could survive? No. No, that would be the source of his inventory to build the firm back up after the war. And this wasn't the first instance of that firm being an idol. The, that history is full of a terrible, terrible pattern. The head of that firm would be a guy who gave it his all, made it his passion, put it ahead of everything, but then he would die. And he'd leave the firm to his sons in a society that was quite paternalistic in that day. Then the sons would start fighting. They would, squa they would squabble and fight and bicker over how the firm was to be run and who was to do what and who was to get what until one by one, voluntarily or involuntarily, all the sons but one would have left the firm. Angry, traumatized, hurt, bitter. My dad decided to leave instead and make his own way in America. So he missed out when the firm indeed blossomed after the war. It thrived. It grew big. It opened branches in such places as Tanzania and Chile. And even the far off, distant place, third of the world, third of the world around, away, called Salinas. So they got plenty wealthy, but the conflict didn't end. There were three brothers left after my dad left for America. When brother number three was kicked out of the firm by his brothers, he got so bitter that when I visited, he forbade me to mention his brother's name in his house. And the bitterness first blew up his marriage. Then he took to chain smoking and a bit of drinking, got throat cancer and died at age 62. Brothers number two and one turned to litigation. And I'm told that the, the case of Sluice versus Sluice reached the highest court of the Netherlands and produced a legal opinion that is taught in Dutch law schools. But at last, when the dust settled, there was one brother in charge of the firm again. A brother who had given it his all, made it his priority. But times had changed. Now there were daughters to share in the firm. And two of the sons saw the pattern and decided they didn't want any part of this. So my uncle sold the firm to an investment group and turned it over to one of his sons who was still willing to participate. And it didn't go well. Without my uncle's passionate leadership, the firm started to flounder. It got sold. The company that bought it sold it again. And last time I was in my parents, my grandfather's hometown and, and saw the office building that was his office, on front of the building flew the flag of the Monsanto Corporation, best known for its trademark product, Roundup. Meanwhile, some of those brothers who had split off over the years had started firms of their own, 
One went into bird seed instead of agricultural seed and produced a line of pet food. And right down the street, in the same Dutch town as my grandfather's firm, was another competing firm by the name of Sluice and Groot, the same last name, a mile apart or two in the same town, competing with each other. Sluice and Groot also got bought out by Syngenta, a big Swiss conglomerate. And just kind of to tie a knot on it all, tie a bow on it all, eventually Monsanto and Syngenta looked into merging so they could be big enough to compete with Dow DuPont. And the Wall Street Journal reported that the merger had hit a snag. It hit a snag in the combination of their seed businesses. It was as if 120 years of fraternal conflict and hatred had metastasized upward to the world of international corporate finance. And that's where it ended, as far as I know. Well, Monsanto wound up being bought by Bayer, which has a facility in Berkeley, and Syngenta wound up being bought by ChemChina. So that's, that's where it all wound up. What they had fought over for well over a century became a little entry in somebody's balance sheet somewhere. That's all that came from it, other than hatred and pain. Meanwhile, my dad didn't hit it rich in America, and he didn't get a share in the family firm. In fact, I brought with me my share of the Sluice family seed firm. See, it's this nifty key ring. <laughs> It's got the uh, corporate emblem encased in clear plastic. <laughs> My dad found work as a grocery clerk, and he raised a big family on that income. So I know what it's like to have two pairs of presentable pants to my name, the Schoolbroek, my school pants, and the Zondagsbroek, my Sunday pants. And I know what it's like to be teased about that sort of thing. Um, Unfortunately, I don't think I handled it very well. I turned it into a learning experience for those who, teach, who teased me. You know, I taught them that it's not necessarily a good idea to pick a war of words with the sharpest-tongued kid in the class. Uh, I didn't exactly turn the other cheek. I, I slapped it more often. But, you know, looking back on it, looking back on it, I have no regrets about the wealth I don't have and didn't get. I have no regrets about being told, you don't put meat and cheese on the same sandwich. That's too extravagant. I don't regret that stuff. I know that my father made the right choice. I know that had he stayed in Holland with that firm, it would have destroyed him too. And even though I know my father had his problems and his sins and his shortcomings, and I'm not going to go into those, I'm thankful that he made the right choice there. That was one thing that he definitely did right in giving up the prospect of wealth, but being the better off for it relationally, emotionally, and spiritually. So happy Father's Day. If you're a father and you're concerned about whether you can give your kids a bourgeois upbringing with a high material standard, or if you're looking at your parents thinking, well, why didn't they have money more, more money for me or spend more money on me? Find some grace.
Find some grace for yourself. Find some grace for your father, for your parents. Because God's got this. We don't need all that stuff. There are better and higher things to live for. So how do we escape the temptation to idolize wealth? It's very similar to other idolatries. Uh, Pastor Andrew has, has preached about identifying, repenting from, and replacing idolatries. Again, in that May 1 uh, sermon, you can look it up online if you like. Giving generously is especially helpful against idolizing wealth and possessions because it's a hands-on exercise in putting God first. Beats sermon, beats anything that anybody can preach to actually do it. Teachers know that. See, I've got to give some credit to the teachers. They know that hands-on experience is a better teacher than hearing somebody pontificate. Um, and it's a win-win because it knocks down an idol and it blesses people. We may need to choose between the less lucrative career path or a more you know, enriching one, or we may need to make a less indulgent lifestyle choice. It doesn't necessarily have to be cash out of hand, but every time we actually make a sacrifice for the kingdom of God, it's an anti-idol measure as well as being a blessing to those who receive it. See, what Jesus told the seeker is broadly applicable to idolatries of every kind with that three-part process. Identify, we need to get past denial and excuses and avoidance and repent. When we, like the seeker, know what's right but lack the power to change, Jesus offers it. That's a core concept for the recovery movement, but it also applies to our everyday life. And replace. God's not interested in just creating a vacuum. He, he wants to fill it. The essential resources, I think, are well known to you. It's the scripture, the leading of the Holy Spirit, sound teaching, and the guidance and support of fellow believers. We need to avail ourselves of these resources by studying the Bible, listening to teaching, fellowshipping with believers, and prayer. We're all in this together, and we should be supporting each other. As Pastor Andrew said last week, if you want more of Christ, leave more. See, Jesus told the seeker to sell everything for the seeker's own good. And when, not if, we're called to give something up for Christ, it's for our own good too. It's better to lose all our property than to miss out on the kingdom of heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, says Jesus in Matthew 6.33. Let's pray. Lord God, thanks for the power to set aside the idols of the world, whatever they may be, and to follow you. I pray that all of us will be quick to avail ourselves of that power, finding encouragement in your word, your spirit, and your people. Please work in our hearts to extend that support of encouragement to each other and to reach out to those around us with your love and truth. Amen. Thanks.